Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome everyone to episode 58 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you today? Yeah, good. I'd ask how you were, but I know that you're sore from putting together a kid's toy, so... (laughs) We weren't going to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't let that one slide. (laughs) Who would have thought putting together a little red wagon would take so much out of you? (laughs) (laughs) And that has to be a pure definition for parenting. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And we crawled out of our pod cave on Friday to do some morning TV. So thanks to the Today Show and thanks to our listeners that um, were disturbed and weirded out by seeing our faces while we were talking. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We'll try and keep that to a minimum moving forward. (laughs) Thank you all for your kind words. Much appreciated. Uh, We would like to return those kind words now to a few Patreon supporters, Chloe. Yes, thank you and welcome to Kelsey Pettifer, Daniel Guy, Shake a Dog Photography, which is Troy, a legend from our Facebook group, Chris, Shane Sawyer, Emma Brawley, Judy Gafer, Michelle Henneberry, Meg Ann and Mark Lynch. And one of those people is my sister-in-law, so thanks, sis. Thank you, everyone, for your support. That's very much appreciated. The case we are discussing today contains graphic descriptions of crimes against young children and some of the content is difficult to hear, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. We're going back to the early 1930s for today's case, Chloe. This was a tough time for Australians as our country suffered greatly off the back of the 1929 Wall Street crash, the effects of which rippled across the globe during a time known as the Great Depression. A shining light for Aussies during this time would be the success of Big Red. No, not Heinz tomato soup, Farlap, the famous chestnut gelding who dominated horse racing across a golden stretch of a couple of years around this time until his untimely passing. That's a whole other podcast, that tale, but one expression Aussies will know is the they had a heart the size of Farlap, a colloquial way of referring to someone's fortitude, generosity, stamina, etc., The guy we're talking about today, well, he was the opposite of that. We don't know much about his heart, but his brain would certainly become a topic of discussion. Dubbed the schoolgirl strangler, this predator, a few beers down each attack, 
blended in amongst the everyday downtrodden bloke walking the streets during this time, and that made him all the more dangerous. I went to Inverloch with them the day he murdered Ethel Belshaw, and when we were down there he wanted to take me for an ice cream. He said, well, I'll give you a dig home. You'd turn around, he'd be behind you in sand shoes. And in those days, people didn't wear sand shoes or runners. With ordinary trousers, and Dad just didn't wear them, only to tennis or sport. But he seemed to to creep around. He just gave us the creeps for some reason. Well, he had no idea that he was a murderer, of course. Makes me shudder now. The Great Depression of the 1930s hit Australians particularly hard. Our country had prospered through the 1920s, having supplied a large amount of wool exports for Defence Force uniforms during World War I. The effects of the Wall Street crash of 1929 eventually made its way down under where our country suffered drastically increased rates of unemployment as a result. Our unemployment rate peaked at 30% in 1932, one of the highest rates in industrialised society at that time, second only to Germany. People were really feeling the pinch, sleeping rough on the streets. Our country wasn't set up to cope with the crippling downturn. Families were eking out impoverished existences, eating bread and drippings if they were lucky. Men, at this time still in the more traditional societal role of breadwinner, were scrambling and competing for work when it came up. Suicide rates increased greatly and returning soldiers, still recovering from post-war trauma, were sleeping under newspapers outside overrun Salvation Army refuges across the country. Not everyone was on their knees in Australia, but it was something our country and many of our citizens experienced at the time. And it's a hard thing to imagine in our day and age, Chloe, but I think with recent events, we can certainly at least begin to understand how the rippling effect of an overseas occurrence can impact us here much closer to home in a big way. It's a vivid picture to paint, but we think it's important to set the scene for the tale we're talking about today. It's against this backdrop on the 9th of November, 1930, Young John Brand and his friend were skipping along, trying to catch goldfinches. This was in the Melbourne suburb of Ormond. The young lads arrived at Wheatley Road, where they continued to walk until they reached number 104 Wheatley Road. This house was vacant and had been for a few months. The boys might have known this, being locals. They went inside for a poke around, probably hoping to find something of value or something they could mess around with. Instead, they'd get the shock of their young lives when they went into the bathroom. Here, they saw the body of a young girl, face down on the floor, quite clearly deceased, even to their inexperienced eyes. The lads quickly turned on the spot and went home to tell their parents, who in turn contacted the police. Detectives were on the scene at 104 Wheatley Road, Ormond, quick as you like. The young girl in the bathroom had been strangled to death bound after death with her own underwear and a gag roughly shoved into her throat. The autopsy revealed that she hadn't been sexually assaulted prior to her murder. It didn't take long for the police to confirm the young girl's identity. She was 12-year-old Mina Griffiths. 
She'd been reported missing the evening prior. The Griffiths family lived in Caroline Street, South Yarra, and they'd fallen on particularly hard times recently off the back of the aforementioned depression. Mina's father had been out of work for some time and, sadly, the Griffiths couldn't afford a funeral for Mina. Inquiries led police to discover that Mina had been playing at Faulkner Park on the Saturday with her younger sisters, Joyce and Daphne, and another friend of theirs named Dawn. The girls said that while they were playing, a man they'd never met before, never seen before, approached them and asked Mina to go and run an errand with her. Deliver a message was the way he phrased it. Mina agreed, and as she was walking off with the man, her younger sister Joyce ran up to the pair and asked where they were going and if she could go too. The man gave Joyce and the other girls a penny and told them to go and get some ice creams. When Joyce asked again to go with them, he said, no, two cannot go, before sending the other girls away as he left with Mina. Mina reassured the girls she'd be back soon, but when they returned to the park after getting their ice creams, she and the man weren't there and they never returned. From reported witness sightings, police were able to piece together Mina's movements to some extent. The man took her to St Kilda, around three kilometres away. Here, he bought her fish and chips. From there, the trail went cold, but it was evident she'd either been lured or taken to the empty house on Wheatley Road, Ormond, some 10 kilometres away after this. Hundreds of suspects from the area were interviewed by police, but there wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest. One reported sighting of interest, though, came from a local milkman, a bloke named Mr Howe. He was from Bentley. Between 4 and 5am on the Sunday morning, Mr Howe was delivering milk on Wheatley Road when he saw a car pull up about 100 yards from the house at number 104. Mr Howe later narrowed this time down closer to 10 past 4. Not thinking much of the vehicle at the time, five minutes later, Mr Howe noticed the vehicle U-turn and speed back towards Melbourne. Police were very interested in this vehicle and believed it to be the murderer. They were also sure that he knew this house on Wheatley Road was vacant, therefore he might be a local. Police determined that the vehicle had Michelin tyres. However, this lead was later dismissed when the tyre marks were proven to be from a nearby party-goer who left on the Saturday night. Police were also considering the possibility that Mina's murder might be connected to another attacking Glenn Huntley a few months earlier. The child had survived on this occasion but had been badly assaulted and left with two black eyes at the hands of an unidentified man. Reports of this man's physical description were said to closely resemble the man at Faulkner Park who took Mina. Faulkner Park also adjoined a school on nearby Punt Road. Police discovered through further questioning at this school that a man of similar description had been talking to young girls in the playground, trying to entice them away. A general description of this man, he was 40 to 50 years of age, inclined to stoutness, the papers at the time said, which means he had a bit of weight on him, 5 foot 8 or 176 centimetres tall, with an ugly face, decayed teeth, dark hair and scars on the lower portion of his face. He also had a bruised eye and he was wearing a black or blue grease-stained suit, white shirt with no collar or tie and had a grey hat turned down into his face. This description happened to match that of a nearby ex-con who'd recently been released after serving time for flogging two young girls in a northern suburb of Melbourne. There were no further reports on this man, but one important sighting of Mina that one woman reported provided a very similar description of her abductor. She described him as being a real larrikin, 
and had seen the man and Mina at the tram stop on the corner of Chapel and High Street. This man, who had on a similar grease-stained blue suit with a grey felt hat and rotten teeth, was making jokes, trying to get the girl's spirits up, but she wasn't buying into it. And it was this that made the woman take notice and watch the pair for a while as she waited at the intersection. So police had sightings, they had descriptions, they had leads, and they were tracking each and every one of them down to no avail at first, but then they got a solid lead, a tip-off, that took inquiries north into the Riverina district of New South Wales to the town of Tamora. Here, information police received led them to the town's railway yards where, under a piece of tin, they discovered a man's swag. Inside the swag was a bloodstained shirt and a pair of bloodstained trousers. Police placed a great deal of weight on these clothing items, which were said to be very similar in appearance to Mina Griffith's clothing. Further inquiries led them to the owner of the swag, a man named Robert James McMahon. Robert was of average height and a slim build, with a five o'clock shadow splashed across his suntan face. The evidence found in his swag was intriguing to police, but the depth of it would come into question. Still, it was enough at the time, alongside reports they had connecting him back to the Melbourne area, to charge Robert McMahon with Mina Griffith's murder. Robert, an itinerant worker, a labourer, like many men during this time, fronted court, defended himself and didn't apply for bail. Mina's mother, Alice Griffiths, positively identified the bloodstained clothing as her daughter's and wept as she was escorted from the court, motioning to Robert and saying, let me get at him. Over the next couple of months, police looked into strengthening their case against Robert McMahon after his initial court appearance prior to committal proceedings. Joyce Griffiths, Mina's younger sister, gave her statement and identified Robert McMahon as the man who had lured Mina away. And during these committal proceedings, police were not keen on looking into potential alibi witnesses Robert McMahon provided in the Leeton area of New South Wales. They dismissed Robert's version of events and the people he mentioned of even existing. Robert said he had travelled from the Melbourne suburb of Footscray to Holbrook, Kalkan and Narandera by bicycle in the weeks prior to Mina's murder before ending up in Tamora where police had picked him up. No one believed his story and Robert McMahon was committed to stand trial. Fortunately for him, it wouldn't come to that. Like many of the other leads police had in Mina Griffith's murder, the case against Robert McMahon would peter out. In police lineups conducted, 10 witnesses from Faulkner Park on the day of Mina's abduction None of these people identified Robert McMahon as the person they'd seen. Police were eventually forced to take Robert's alibi story seriously and look into this further. It was a man's life on the line after all. When they did, a further 13 witnesses were discovered, all who positively identified Robert as working at an orchard in Leeton, New South Wales, on the day of Mina's murder. Most importantly, Robert had told that he'd travelled from Hilston to Leeton just the day before Mina's abduction, and he travelled to the orchard with a pair of blokes named Heard and Oswild. Both of these guys were located and provided a positive alibi for Robert McMahon, alongside the orchard owner, who was able to confirm he was working in the fields on the dates in question. Upon hearing his name being cleared, Robert McMahon broke down in tears and didn't speak a word. This left the investigation at a standstill, and Mina's family once again with no answers while her killer remained on the loose. 
A short time after this, there'd be another murder reported in the Melbourne press, which would be linked to Mina Griffiths and the next victim we're going to discuss. And that's the murder of Mary Molly Dean. We won't delve into the details of this right now, as ultimately it wasn't connected with this series of murders we're discussing today, but it's a fascinating case and it's had a few excellent novels published about it in recent years, so we'll likely cover this case in an upcoming episode. For now, we fast forward nine weeks later into January of 1931. Adeline Hazel Wilson, known as Hazel, once slept in a telephone booth with her friend Lucy Hogan. The pair often stayed out together. Other nights, Hazel went out with Edward Holt, a labourer from Glen Huntley. On a couple of occasions, Hazel's father Fred had abused Edward at the front gate as he saw Hazel off at her home in Ormond. Hazel had said she was afraid to go home, afraid of her father, and that he locked her in her room once for an entire day. Frederick Wilson was said to have quite the quick temper. He'd come at his wife, Sarah, on one occasion with a razor, and on another he'd hack down the door with an axe, Stephen King shining style, when Sarah wouldn't open it. So it was no wonder Hazel might have feared her father, despite his alleged intentions to have been curbing the wayward behaviours of a misbehaving teenager staying out late with men. On the 10th of January 1931, Hazel left her home in Melton Avenue, Ormond, with her friend Lucy Hogan. The pair had been friends for three years, and Lucy lived in East Paran. Lucy had been staying at the Wilsons for a couple of weeks by this time. Around 8.15pm, the pair trundled off towards Glen Huntley Station, where Lucy planned to catch the train home. Frederick had reportedly given Hazel four pence as the girls left, maybe to pay for Lucy's fare, The girls certainly didn't spend it on cigarettes, instead decided to sidle up to a few blokes along the way and get a smoke or two from them. Norman Truin was one man who'd later recall giving Hazel a cigarette this evening. Lucy caught her train and Hazel headed off down Glen Huntley Road back towards her home. At 11.30pm that night, some hours later, Frederick heard a noise outside their house. He looked out the window and saw who he thought was Hazel with a man. Sarah looked out the window a few minutes later, but only saw a man walking down the street, carrying what appeared to be a parcel. The following morning, the two younger Wilson boys, Percy and Siley, visited the household. Hazel hadn't come home, so the young lads rode their bikes over to Lucy Hogan's house to try and find their sister. But Hazel hadn't stayed there. When the lads returned home, Frederick and Sarah reported their daughter missing to the Ormond police and began searching for Hazel around the neighbourhood. Around this time, the Wilson's eldest son, Frank, had also arrived to join in the search. Around midday, Fred found a shoe in their front yard, and Sarah said it was Hazel's. Then Fred noticed some scratch and drag marks on the footpath. These were unmade footpaths and roads back at this time in Ormond. Fred called Frank over, and he followed a pair of heel impressions across the road to number 41 Melton Avenue, which was a vacant block. Here, behind a mound of dirt with gorse bush sprouting from the top, Frank and Fred found Hazel's body. She was lying face down and had been strangled and been bound and gagged with parts of her own clothing, similar to Mina Griffith some months earlier. Police would later determine that Hazel hadn't been sexually assaulted, again like Mina. 
So their history aside, this would have been a devastating blow for the Wilson family to discover your own daughter and sister dead only metres from your house. As news about Hazel's murder hit the papers, reports came in from people who'd seen Hazel the night of her murder with a man. Neighbours in Melton Avenue hadn't heard any screams and in the newspaper reports at the time, most of the focus appeared to be on getting this man to come forward. And the way they did this at the time, I think any suspect would see right through it nowadays. But back then, the wording of many articles, which was obviously paraphrased from police messages to the newspapers, was that this man wasn't a suspect. They just wanted to talk to him so he could help them with their inquiries. They had a firm theory on who the killer was, and it wasn't him. They just needed his help. Despite this, the man didn't come forward, and as time went on, it became evident to police that there was a maniac on the loose murdering young women. Keeping in mind the aforementioned murder of Molly Dean was often being linked in these articles too. So, from a public perspective, three murders of young women in as many months had taken place. The police later received some anonymous letters from someone who claimed to know what had happened to Hazel Wilson. In the end, nothing came of these letters and the news of the murders of both Hazel and Mina slowly faded from the newspapers. It wouldn't be until four years later that we'd see another murder, this time moving regional, away from metropolitan Melbourne down to the Gippsland region of Victoria in the small beachside town of Inverloch. Inverloch was and still is a popular tourist spot, mainly for those who like the sea change holidays and to swim, boat, fish and hit up the beach. Back in 1934, Inverloch had a small fishing industry, a handful of small stores, and in the surrounding areas was mostly dairy farms. On New Year's Eve in 1934, the small town was bustling with a number of coal miners from nearby Wonthaggy taking a hard-earned break. They brought in the New Year with a song, dance and drink at the public hall in A. Beckett Street, which held a traditional ball every New Year's Eve. The following New Year's Day had become quite well known at this time for its Regatta Day, where thousands of beachgoers would come from far and wide to have picnics, play cricket on the beach and swim, etc. Around 12 to 15,000 people attended on New Year's Day in 1935. About 25 kilometres out of Inverloch, there was a small town called Tarwin Meadows. Here on this day, the Knights family were getting ready to attend the Regatta Day, With them was 12-year-old Ethel Belshaw. Ethel was friends with the Knight's daughter, Margaret, and she was heading to the regatta day with them because her parents were indisposed. Her mother was ill at the time and her father, Robert, was attending the Scout World Gymboree in Frankston. Ethel was a quiet and reserved young girl who loved her doll collection. She was very obedient and rarely left her home in Tarwin Meadows. And if she did, it wasn't without the company of her family. When the Knights family arrived at Inverloch, Margaret and Ethel played on the beach. They watched some of the activities taking place, climbing the greasy pole, catching the greasy pig, to name a couple. A lot of grease back at this time, Claude. No wonder all these blokes had grease-stained suits. But anyway, throughout the day, Ethel and Margaret made a few trips to the local shop on the Esplanade, Beach Road. This shop was owned and operated by Mrs Donoghue. Around 4pm, Ethel and Margaret went to the store again to buy some ice cream. Margaret's older brother, Gordon, accompanied them this time. Being such a busy day, there was a line at the shop to purchase items. Ethel picked her ice cream and got in the line first, a few spots ahead of Margaret. 
When she'd bought her treat, she told Margaret on her way out that she'd wait out front and meet her once she'd paid for her stuff. But when Margaret got outside, Ethel was nowhere to be seen. A short time later, Ethel didn't arrive at the designated meeting place the Knights had organised earlier in the day. At first they weren't too concerned, thinking she'd maybe got swept up in the crowd or an activity. But by 6pm, when the crowds had well and truly died down and Ethel still hadn't showed up, the Knights became extremely concerned and contacted the local police. Constable McCarthy, one of three police officers who manned the small local station, arrived first on the scene. A search party comprised of locals and foreshore campers made their way through the beach and scrub looking for any sign of Ethel Belshaw. The party searched throughout the night with no success and commenced again at first light. Down a track close to the beach end of Pier Road, a man named Jay McGuinness was searching when he came upon a small clearing. Here, he spotted Ethel Belshaw's body. She was face down with her hands and legs tied. The police secured the scene and homicide detectives were soon in attendance, accompanied by Aboriginal trackers. The trackers combed the scene for clues, but overnight rainfall made their job much more difficult. They did locate back up the trackerways, the spot where it was believed an initial struggle had taken place, presumably where Ethel was first attacked. The details of Ethel's murder were much the same as we've heard already in this tragic tale. She died from strangulation, with her stockings bound around her neck and shoved down her throat. She too had not been sexually assaulted. Robert Belshaw was still at the Scout Gymboree in Frankston when he received the devastating call that no parent ever wants to get. He returned to Tarwin Meadows post-haste to be with his wife and three other children. The police investigation focused on interviewing hundreds of local residents alongside the many tourists who were in the area. Sightings of Ethel alongside the loosely established time of death played a big part in shaping the police's line of inquiries. But they were inconsistent, these reports. With the number of people in the area that day, it's not a surprise. A Mrs Evans, who lived near where Ethel's body was found, she reported hearing screams coming from the scrub around quarter past eight in the evening. This contradicted medical examiner's opinions that Ethel had likely died between 6.30 and 7pm. A Ms Almore of Corumburra reported seeing Ethel, or someone who looked very much like her, walking with a young male along Leongatha Road. This was around 6pm. Visits to her hometown in Tarwin Meadows to find more about Ethel's background didn't provide much insight, as police discovered she was a mild-mannered young girl who rarely left her home. And in some ways, the flurry of activity on this day made things all the more confusing for the police investigation. It was difficult for police to know what sightings were credible and what wasn't. In the end, their investigation began to focus on the very real possibility that Ethel Balshaw knew her killer. There were no clues to suggest otherwise, and it seemed like a more likely scenario. After 18,000 interviews, police determined that Ethel had been killed by someone she knew and someone we've already talked about, Gordon Knights, Margaret's 18-year-old brother. Reports indicated that he was the last person to see Ethel alive, which made sense as he'd accompanied her and Margaret to the shop, and we'd see something quite similar to what happened to Robert McMahon go down after this, with Gordon being charged with Ethel's murder and having to face committal proceedings. The case against Gordon was weak, relying largely on the fact that he was the last person to have been with her while she was alive. 
The circumstantial case tried to focus on the young man's behaviour in the time after Ethel's disappearance and the discovery of her body to implicate him as her killer. The problem was Gordon had nothing but positive character references, even from Robert Belshaw, who considered him an exemplary young man. Witnesses came forward and provided time-critical alibis for Gordon, and ultimately he was released on the charge of murdering Ethel. It was becoming apparent that the less likely theory of an out-of-towner committing this heinous crime was closer to the truth, and more likely again that it was the same man responsible for the unsolved Ormond murders four years earlier, and this madman was still on the loose. After Gordon Knights was released, news of Ethel's murder subsided in the local press, and things seemingly went back to normal, for most people anyway. The Belshaw family, I'm sure, life for them would have never been the same. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Nearly 12 months would pass until on the 1st of December 1935 in the town of Leongatha, six-year-old June Rushmer and Shirley Steele went to play on the swings at a nearby recreation reserve. Leongatha is in the Gippsland region too, around 20 minutes inland northeast of Inverloch. Shirley's mum, Florence, had just made the girls some afternoon tea before they skipped down to the park to play. When it got to 6.30pm, Florence called Shirley back home. Shirley, who didn't want to get in trouble from her mum or grandmother, did the right thing and left. June left too, walking through the gate of the reserve in the direction of Roughhead Street towards her home. As June walked, a young six-year-old boy named Luston Wisdom saw her walking along Roughhead Street. This was the last time June Rushmer was seen alive. She didn't arrive home and later that evening she was reported missing and a search for the young girl commenced. The search went through the night and into the following morning. At 8.15am, William Watson, a local labourer who was aiding in the search, made his way towards the railway crossing near the rubbish tip. This was on McPherson's Lane, about a kilometre from the Rushmer family home. In the nearby bushes, William saw the body of six-year-old June Rushmer. She was lying face down, surrounded by blackberries and sword grass. Her arms were tied behind her back at the wrists, and she too had been gagged and strangled with her own clothing. Police detectives raced to the scene, undoubtedly linking this brutal crime to the more recent murder of Ethel Belshaw, particularly being in the same district as Inverloch. 
Again, there was little evidence for police to rely on outside of public sightings. Two young boys came forward, Vincent Desmond and Henry Money. They'd seen a man near the scene of the murder, wearing a dark suit and pedalling a bike. They didn't get a good look at him, but they did get a look at June, who was riding with the man on his bike, sitting on the handlebars or forks of the bike. Again, this sighting was only helpful in establishing what they already presumed happened to June. Most men were wearing dark suits, hats and riding bikes around this time, particularly in the regional areas like Leangatha. Police interviewed thousands of men from the area fitting this broad description. Bike riding, intermittent labourers, scraping for a day's work and some cash when and wherever they could. These men may well have all blended into one another, except this time police would catch a break when a report from a particular man's work colleague came in. The workmate called in about a bloke named Arnold Carl Soderman. Soderman was 35, he lived in Leangatha with his wife Bernice and daughter Joan. He was a labourer in a roadwork gang, one of thousands of people police had already spoken to, and he was a softly spoken man, not prone to outbursts or displays of rage. So why had this workmate called in to police about Soderman, someone so unsuspecting? Well, it was his reaction to a joke at work that raised the eyebrows of a few colleagues. While having a cup of tea on the road cruise break one morning, one of the labourers was reading the paper, which reported the police were looking for a man who rode a bike in relation to June's murder. The worker joked that Soderman rode a bike, and it could have been him near the scene, a line that would have generally garnered a chuckle from Soderman before they all went back to work. But it didn't pan out that way. Soderman, usually calm and reserved, shot a sharp look at his work colleague, threw the contents of his cup of coffee away before storming off in a rage while mouthing obscenities. It was a strange reaction, but as the day wore on, most people forgot about it, except for this one colleague who couldn't shake the reaction from the otherwise quiet man. The road workers were currently occupying a campsite near to where they were working and the following day, detectives visited off the back of the suspicious report and brought Arnold Soderman in for a chat. At first, police were a bit miffed about Soderman. He didn't seem the type and they weren't convinced that he was their man. They were especially wary of jumping the gun again after having charged two men in this series of murders, both of whom turned out to be innocent. It took some time, some questioning, but eventually the softly spoken, unassuming Arnold Soderman broke down and confessed that he'd killed June Rushmer. And not just June, but Ethel Belshaw, Hazel Wilson and Mina Griffiths too. Arnold Soderman was born in 1899. Some reports said 1900, but he was born in Victoria. Both his father and grandfather had passed away in mental health facilities and his mother had endured periodic bouts of amnesia throughout her life. So genetically, he was behind the eight ball when it came to matters of the mind. Soderman had turned criminal early in life before settling down when he got older. At age 18, he'd got done for theft and forgery and spent time in a reformatory for 12 months. Upon release, he and an accomplice held up a station master at Surrey Hills, shooting and wounding the man, which again landed Soderman behind bars, this time doing hard labour behind the walls of Pentridge Prison for three years. At some point, Soderman was transferred to French Island Prison, which proved to be a mistake as he escaped from there. He was apprehended shortly after, though, and given an extra 12-month stretch. Upon release in 1926... 
Soderman calmed his farm and married Bernice Pope in Collingwood, the couple later conceiving a baby named Joan in 1928. At first they lived in Melbourne, Ormond at one stage, before moving regionally to Gippsland where Soderman could get work. Soderman was described as a hard-working, pleasant man with a generous disposition. His marriage, by all reports, was a happy one and he was an attentive father. It was also reported that he had bouts of depression and he had trouble with alcohol, which at the time I doubt would have been unusual considering the circumstances many people were facing. But it was Arnold Soderman's confessions to police that sealed the deal as far as they were concerned. The details he relayed were just too much for someone who hadn't been there and committed these acts. Soderman's retelling of what happened to June Rushmer was first. He'd been riding back to the campsite where he was working during the week after spending the weekend at home with his family. He happened upon June, who was walking home, and offered her a ride. This contradicted other reports I read, where an older Shirley Steele described Soderman as luring June Rushmer away with the promise of ice cream. Shirley said he'd apparently tried this on her too, which she declined for fear of getting in trouble. But Soderman's story was he let June go, telling her to walk the rest of the way home, and once she was off his bike, he decided to chase after her. June became frightened, as any six-year-old would, and she ran into some bushes. Soderman gave chase, grabbed the six-year-old around the neck as she screamed. June then went limp and he bound and gagged her, using the girl's own belt to secure the gag in her mouth. So these details left police in no doubt that this was their guy. Soderman went on to provide details and clarity around what he'd done in the previous three murders. We won't read out his statements in their entirety as it pretty much confirms what we've already covered, that he lured the three young girls away before killing them and happened upon Hazel Wilson in the evening while walking the streets. All of the murders were opportunistic, that was clear, as was the fact that Soderman had been drinking when they all took place. It was also confirmed that he'd known both Ethel Belshaw and June Rushmer, having briefly lived in Tarwin Meadows and presently in Liam Gather. Despite his earlier criminal record, those who knew Arnold Soderman couldn't marry up these criminal actions with the man they thought they knew. It just didn't add up. His wife and daughter in particular were shocked to hear this about their husband and father. Soderman was escorted to Melbourne promptly after word got out in Leon Gatha that they'd caught their man. The police narrowly avoided a local lynch mob looking to take Soderman out before his day in court. For reasons we can only assume related back to evidence, time and money, or a combination of all three perhaps, Arnold Soderman was only charged for the murder of June Rushmer, not the previous three victims, Mina Griffiths, Hazel Wilson and Ethel Belshaw, despite him confessing to these. His trial began on the 17th of February 1936 and his defence pleaded insanity, claiming Soderman was suffering from a mental disorder which created obsessional impulses that were so strong when he had a few beers it was uncontrollable. The defence used the fates of his father, grandfather and mother as evidence to back this up. But in the end, the jury didn't believe it. Arnold Soderman was found guilty of June Rushmer's murder and sentenced to death by hanging. His defence appealed to the High Court and Privy Council in London, both times ending in rejection. Five days later, Arnold Soderman was hanged and buried in an unmarked grave at Pentridge Prison. His last words to the prison warden were, I'm glad it's nearly over. When he walked onto the scaffold, the sheriff again asked if he had anything he wished to say, to which Soderman replied, nothing, sir. 
A post-mortem medical examination of Arnold Soderman's body, in particular his brain, shed some interesting light on the serial murderer. He was diagnosed as having a condition called leptomeningitis, which was described as an inflammation of the sheets of tissue covering the brain. Now, we looked into this a little bit and we couldn't figure out if this was uh, more commonly just called meningitis nowadays or if this is something completely different, but we thought we'd point that out. The condition is said to be aggravated by alcohol, which was interesting because Soderman himself had said his urge to strangle young girls only came on after he'd had a few beers. So how much to read into that? Well, we'll leave that to our listeners. As far as this tale goes, that's it. That's the tragic tale of the murders of four innocent young girls and that of their killer, the schoolgirl strangler, Arnold Soderman. So my thoughts on this one, it's sometimes easy to remove yourself from things that happened this long ago. It's easy to forget that people have been doing terrible things to each other for as long as we've been around, especially during a time like the Depression where people were desperate and who knows what else. The one thing that seems old-fashioned to me is the autopsy on the brain. To me, that seems like the studies done in the early 1900s where doctors identified that a certain shape of forehead meant someone was more inclined to commit crimes and that was, you know, later discredited. The fact that he perhaps had a form of meningitis that was inflamed by alcohol or, you know, made that worse, that seems a bit outdated to me. But that's pretty much it from me. How about you? Yeah, I tend to think the same thing about it. I'm not really sure mate, what to make of the condition um, and how much that had to, to do with what he did. I think it's fair to say that alcohol, generally speaking, impairs judgment and, and lowers one's inhibitions. Um, I'm probably more thinking that this this kind of thing was in him and suppressed and and uh, and maybe, you know, that uh, when he had a few drinks, it just made the feelings uh, overwhelming. I'm, I'm not sure how connected that is. We looked into yeah. it a little a little bit, but, you know, we're, we're not doctors, so we're not going to really uh, have, an, have much of an opinion on that. But, um, you know, it's a very tragic tale. No matter which way you slice it and dice it, it's set against a, a pretty tough uh, backdrop for Australian families back at this time. So, you know, as always, our thoughts are with those who, who lost loved ones in this story. Yeah, definitely. So let's go on to our happy thoughts. Um, what's yours this week? Uh, it's my daughter's birthday tomorrow when this, because we're recording Sunday, this episode will come out tomorrow. So uh, uh, that was pretty exciting just getting all the presents together and also getting yeah. all yours, getting a bit of it all set up before we, uh, uh, and that's how I inadvertently uh, injured myself <laughs> prior to us recording, <laughs> setting up a little red wagon that's um meant to be something like the one Bluey pulls around. So, yeah, hopefully she enjoys it. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) What's yours? Um, Mine is that one of my three dogs is getting old. She turned 12 this year. Um, She's a King Charles Cavalier. She was the runt of the litter. She has an overbite and her tongue hangs out four or five inches all the time. Um, She's funny and weird and bossy. And she's getting, because she's getting so old, our other dogs are pretty um, energetic still and can do a decent walk, but we kind of can't really walk more than four or five Ks where Belle's just really lagging behind. That's the dog that I'm talking about. So I bought a bag for my dog. I bought a backpack <laughs> that my dog can go in and we used it on the weekend for the first time. On Saturday it was pretty wet here and I think 90% of it was she just didn't want to walk in the rain, but she refused to walk. So we put her in the bag and 
she rode around on our backs like an absolute queen while we went for our normal walk. (laughs) (laughs) Good on her. Path of least resistance. I'd be doing the same. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page and there you can get access to our exclusive little Patreon community, which is great. We do uh, ad-free regular episodes, early release when we can, um, and you can also get a bunch of extra content as well. We do Blue Label episodes, our Murder Lounge news episodes, sneak previews, and I've been chipping away at a blooper reel, so I think we'll have another another one of those maybe in the next uh, few weeks coming up close. So, yeah. And we're taking next week off the main feed, but we'll be back the following week with something interesting for you all. Yep, and in the meantime, you're going to be working on some Patreon stuff and I'll be trying to splice together a reel for the upcoming podcast awards, which I think we're entering, right? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how we go. <laughs> That's it for us. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.